0: in just a moment. So without further ado, please welcome my dear friend, the great Sandy Gennaro. And there he is. (laughs) I've got to time my intro a little better. I, I, I should have given a little bit more time, but Sandy, great to see you,
1: buddy. Great to see you too, John. It's been a long time coming and it's always a pleasure to be in your company, even virtually.
0: Oh, thanks, brother. Thank you. And likewise, too. I know. to. to well, we've talked about this for some time now and you've been busy and uh, been wanting to do this for some time now. So I'm just I'm just glad we could do it today. And I appreciate you. I know you've got something after this, too. So I appreciate you taking the time this morning to do
1: it. Anytime. Anytime for you, John.
0: Thanks, buddy. We got got a few folks watching, quite a few folks watching at home, too. And
1: uh, I apologize for the people that I don't recognize their name, because, um, you know, as you get older, kind of the the brain cells kind of get a little frayed around the edges, (laughs) (laughs) the the memory brain cells. So uh, but I, I do appreciate him reaching out for sure.
0: I know that goes, yeah, bumped into, but Sandy, I yeah. want
1: to go ahead. No, go ahead. No, Good. Ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to, I'm going to say that brings, it brings back a memory of someone by the name of Rick Mattingly. Yes. Yeah. Another ex modern drummer editor at large or whatever.
0: That's right. Great guy. That, he's, he's a, yeah. And I still keep in touch with Rick. He's involved with uh, percussive arts. So I, he writes for their magazine and their newsletter and, Every now and again, he'll reach out asking for me to give him a quote on something, or you know, he's he's a good guy,
1: really good. good. guy. tell him I said hi when you when you contact him.
0: I will. And some guy named Joe Vitali has just typed in a comment saying, "What did you have for dinner last night? Better <laughs> better be some kind of pasta."
1: <laughs> it was Saturday night, Joey. Uh, it was Saturday <laughs> night, so we we had we had a uh, grandma pie, half pepperoni, half. Cooked onions with grandma pie, and we had a little get together with my daughter and her boyfriend and my wife, and we had a little. But it wasn't pasta. Maybe that might be on the agenda today, being Sunday gravy day in the Genero household. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh,
0: I had, I had, I had a, a form of pasta last night. Joe. I had, I had risotto. So I think that qualifies as a pasta.
1: Um. Uh, the jury's still out on that little Rosotto comparison. John. <laughs> you got to have the stuff dripping on your mouth, and you have to have the napkin in your collar so you don't get any on your lap.
0: That's I do that plenty of times. Yeah, always, <laughs> always, especially with with the gravy, with the red sauce.
1: There you it, go. It, I,
0: yeah, I never miss with that stuff. Joe <laughs> says, "Bravo." Uh, we. <laughs> He is too funny.
1: I'll see He's Joe so in a little while, actually. He's part of that Zoom call that I'm going to be doing uh in about an hour from now, hour and a half or something.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. Um well it's it's and it's cool to have I had Joe the other day and to have you today because two two guys that that are, you know, I, I think of like not, you know, the word road warrior is is a sort of a, a an old expression, but I think of like all the years that you've been on the road, all the tours that you've done, you know, and and the history of like your your career going back to, I mean, I, I, I'm I aware of your career going back to Pat Travers, but it goes back to, I, I looked in the band Blackjack was before that, right? That was correct. Yeah. And that was when you were living in LA? Uh,
1: no, uh, no, actually, I got that. I got the invitation to audition for a, a yet unknown band, to be called Blackjack, but I got that call while I was living in Los Angeles. I lived in Los Angeles for three years in the late 70s, 76 to 79, trying to get my first big break in the music business, and it wasn't happening at all. And then by some freaking nature, and the universe smiled at me, he hooked me up with uh, someone by the name of Steve Weiss, who was the attorney for Led Zeppelin. And he was putting a band together, a band project around Michael Bolton, Belotin, as he was known then, and Bruce yeah. Kulick and Jimmy Haslip. And he needed a drummer because labels would now show an interest. And so he as a uh, on a on Carmine Apice was kind of well Carmine Apice, sorry, Carmine. He was involved, <laughs> he was involved. The fact that I had his name on my resume that I sent to Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin's manager, never really got forwarded to Peter Grant. Steve Weiss, who was the attorney, opened the let opened the resume and was looking for a drummer around that time for the band I just described. And Carmine's name was on it. And Steve Weiss, as the universe winked at me again, Steve Weiss used to be the attorney for uh, Vanilla Fudge, who was Carmine's first, one of, Carmine's first band. And so based on the, Carmine's recommendation, Steve Weiss called me, do you want to audition for this band? So that was Blackjack. That was 79 and 80. And a little side note, and Carmine will, will admit to this, that, Uh, In those conversations while I was having with Carmine in Los Angeles, because I was a friend of his then... Um, I recommended to him that he go audition for Rod Stewart because I went on that audition and I didn't get it because I brought my own drum set to a, an audition where backline was already provided. And I let Rod wait and the band wait while I set up a double bass drum set to play Tonight's the Night, which is a, 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 a small, lazy shuffle that all I needed was a hi-hat kick and snare. But in my insecurity, I brought my own drum set so long story short, I told Carmine about that failed audition and I said, Carmine, you should go to go to that. I don't think they found anybody. He went down and got the gig. Wow. So there was kind of a reciprocal kind of, you know, my name, you know, when you do stuff for each other, the right. universe, God winks at that and, and creates things, things in our path to fulfill what our goals are. And it doesn't have to be our goals, it could be any direction, but you know, there's so much at work beyond our scope of imagination behind the scenes that what sets all of that good stuff in your path john is treating people with respect no matter what their title is no matter what color they are what political you know what they stand for what religious what what their last name and how long their last name is and you can't even pronounce it it doesn't matter you treat people well and the universe smiles and it's not an arbitrary thing in my in in my personal opinion it's it's a law of it's a law of cause and effect you know when you cause positive stuff positive stuff comes back to you if you whatever you want in your life professionally or uh personally give it away and you'll end up getting back in droves you know it's it's a you know, it's whatever. Go ahead. So it's to, to a long-winded answer to your question. The Blackjack was my first pro gig, and yeah. I was blessed to be in a studio called Criteria in Miami, uh, being produced by Tom Dowd, legendary Tom Dowd, my wow. first project. How blessed is that? Um, and then that, that led to... The Blackjack thing led to Benny Mardonis' album, which I recorded, and off that album came into the night. And then now... With Blackjack and both Benny Mardonis being involved with Polygram or Polydor Records, which was the label Travers was on, um, word got out that Travers was thinking about firing, uh, getting letting go of Tommy Aldrich for whatever reason. And I was alerted of that and, and give, given management's number. So I called Pat's manager at the time. His name is David Hemmings. And I went over, and and that's how it ended up that I ended up getting Travers' gig. And now I'm replacing Tommy Aldridge in a band, so that created some attention, national attention. Who's this guy? And Travers was kind of on top of his game at the late '70s with Boom Boom and snorting sure. whiskey, drinking cocaine. So that put me on the national map, and that that's when the the Ludwig endorsement came, and that's when Pasty originally came. That's when my endorsements came, and. And then after the Travers gig, then that led to then something that I did for somebody in the doorway, Dave in the doorway. And I I signed an autograph for him when I had no time to do that when I was playing an arena in Connecticut. And I just because the guy was there to see me and not Travers. He was there. I was the last one in the dressing room. I took time and I helped him out and signed this up for a picture. And asked him. he asked me to get him a gig in New York because he was a bass player in Connecticut. I helped him get a gig. Three years later, he calls me and he's managing this new unknown artist uh, called Cyndi Lauper. And so every gig that I've gotten, John, in my whole life has been directly or indirectly as a result of me helping somebody out. The monkeys' gig was the same way. And then when you get a gig, then it leads to other stuff. The dominoes just keep falling, you know, it's just, and you end up living life with the wind to your back, you know, and swimming with the tide instead of everything being a struggle. Right, Right. And the key is just treat somebody. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know, John, you're of that, you're of that personality. I've known you for close to 40 years. Um, you 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 live that life and that's why you're blessed. And that's why you have a great family. And that's why everybody loves you because you give the positive. You, you, you are the type of person that makes everybody grateful for crossing that path, you know, and, and, you know, you need help. You're there. There's somebody in the parking lot of a supermarket that drops their bag of groceries. You'll be the one to go over and help them. And that's why you are where you are, John. That's why everybody loves John the Christopher.
0: Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Sandy. Well, I got to say, <clears throat> I'm speechless, but this has been this, that answer that you just gave me is so illuminating because I didn't know you were auditioned for Rod Stewart. That's a, that's in all the years I've known you. That's a piece of information I was not aware of. So what a cool story that, that you, and what a great lesson to people that, you know, You you know you were you were ambitious. You were wanting to make the best possible impression, so you brought your own drums. I I think anybody would think the same thing, and uh, not knowing they'd have a backup kit
1: there. Or if I can if I can if I can just elaborate on that last statement. It wasn't that I wanted to make the best impression and bring my own drums. It was out of total insecurity. And total, I did not believe in myself very much as a drummer at that point in time. And and I should have, but I had no track record. All I did was play in cover bars and cover bands on the East Coast. And so it was because of my insecurity. And I walked out of that audition and for the weeks following before I sent the resumes to 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 fifty managers that that I you know like like the music of the, the bands that they managed and one of them was um, Peter Peter Grant of Led Zeppelin, yeah. Wow. So anyway, so it's uh it's but walking out of that audition I was the lowest I ever was before or since that moment because I moved to LA 3,000 miles from my home trying to get my first big break nothing was really going on in LA I was promised a lot of stuff that never came true and and I was very disillusioned by the whole concept of me trying to get to the next level and i cried myself to sleep my relationship at the time was going down the tubes i didn't have enough money for the rent at the end of the month and i was about to throw the sticks in the fireplace i was i was i was beating myself up mentally i was beating myself up physically drinking myself to sleep every night but i just prayed give me a sign like, give me give me some sort of signal about what to do next because I don't know I, w- I, w- I was I was at the mercy of the uh, if, if I spent three more weeks doing what I was doing I don't know if I would have made it I was at the edge of the cliff physically and mentally and something said keep going that image of Ringo that image of Ringo on Ed Sullivan don't, don't forget how you felt when you wanted to do exactly what Ringo was doing and Ed Sullivan played to an audience of screaming women Are you kidding? And that's what kind of kept me going. And and that's when I say I got the idea of getting Billboard Magazine Talent Management Directory, getting the names and addresses of 50 managers. I like the bands that they managed and hope for the best. Nobody called me back of those 50 managers. Peter Grant never even got my resume. But thank God he didn't because his attorney, Steve Weiss, opened it. And there's the story.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's So the lesson is no matter how far down you are of all the people that are listening that they want to achieve something in the music business or in any other business and things don't seem to be going your way, have faith because as long as you have a breath, you have hope that it will happen. And it may not happen on your timetable. It's not about when you want things to happen. You just you may have to wait. For the right situation, and it may not something better may come up. You know what I mean? So, yeah, especially yes. us, you know, John, as well as anybody in the music business, you 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 know, you get off a Cindy Lauper tour, and, and the next day you're looking for a gig.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah,
1: you know. So That's you got to gotta have good. you know you got to have a, a faith in yourself and. um and faith in the universe that they're going to do the right thing, or the universe is God is going to do the right thing and put the right people in your path. And you just have to have faith every morning when you get up and when you go to bed at night and just believe that it will happen. You don't sometimes know how, but it always does. If you have the right mindset, that's the that's the key.
0: Yeah. Yeah. and And, you know, I'll say also that you being, you know, the the guy that you are, the, obviously the musician that you are, um, you know, and, and I, I'm just saying this to not take away from the fact that you get hired for for these gigs because, you know, you're you're a great guy to have in the bandstand. You're reliable. You're as long as I've known you, as you say, almost 40 years. You're the consummate professional. In all the time I've known you, the first time we met was that drum clinic all those years ago, and, and at uh, at Freddie's in Boston, and. And I remember you coming in and you, you were like, you know, we'd only had a few I'd only had experience with a few clinicians at that point. And you were, you were so pro the way that just the way that you handled yourself. And you, you, you know, I probably asked you a thousand stupid questions and you were so great to everybody. You were so great to the fans that were there to see you. Um, and, you know, you were at that time, you were Cindy's, Cindy Lauper's drummer. You were a huge star. And, and I, and that that made such an impression with me that, you were just a regular guy, Yankees jacket and all too. You came in wearing a Yankees.
1: <laughs> of course out. I did. Are you kidding? And I'll be wearing it in Boston in September when I do the cancer benefit. I'll be wearing Yankee swag. You could bet on that.
0: I know you will. I know you will. We've all we you know, it's we can talk we, you and I could talk as we've done for hours about that. And and it's it's amazing how this town has like you know, breathed this huge sigh of relief since 2004 you know it's like
1: we're like okay don't remind me john next subject
0: (laughs) i do i do want to share one little anecdote with everybody so they know the kind of guy you are and i think you'll remember this but i have to also quickly jump backwards and give you one little comment that eddie our friend eddie taduri uh made and it's great advice he said never bring your own drums to an audition bring meatballs (laughs) i think that i think that's great <laughs> Leave it to Eddie, but I remember you and I were um, in 2004. You had not yet signed with Zildjian, but we had been friends all those years, and we stayed in touch. And uh, I'd see you at the collective when I'd come down to New York, and we'd always visit and hang out. And 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 I, uh, you know, we thought the world of each other. And and I remember you called me when the Red Sox beat the Yankees in the Eastern Conference Finals and went on to the World Series in 2004. That Unbelievable, you know, coming back from four games down or three games down deficit, and you said to me, "Well, I'm rooting for the Red Sox now. You know, the Yankees are my team, but I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna root for the team that's now that's the American League team that's going to the World Series." And, I'm, and I I just thought that was, as the Yankees fan that you are, um, and I should tell people that Sandy would include me on these. Um, Email threads, then I'd see like Don Mattingly's name on, you know, as one of the recipients. I'm like, holy cow. It's like this guy doesn't fool around. But um, anyway, I, I so appreciated that. You know, I wondered if our friendship would be the same after that. And
1: of, course, you know. of course. Of course. Of yeah. course it is, John. And, and I just want to clarify when I said to you, I'm going to root for the Red Sox now. That didn't mean I was gonna be blanketly rooting for the Red Sox from that point forward. I was gonna root for the Red Sox in the following World Series against the National League team because I'm an American League fan. Yes. Just like when people say, oh, don't you root for the Mets? Don't, don't you hate the Mets? No, I don't hate the Mets. The fact that if they're not playing the Yankees, I'll root for the Mets because they're from New York. Beautiful. Yeah. So that, Perfect. that's yeah. That's yeah. Good. Right. I'm glad I clarified that because because uh, <laughs> the Yankees just swept Boston last weekend. So I went. Oh. Okay, so go ahead, John. Right. I, yeah. I don't want. I want to yeah. take no. your your <laughs> No,
0: no, that's okay. But I, I just to, I wanted to just make that point. And I, and I, I know I went off on a tangent, but I did want to say that that you know, in all those in all those years after we met, and when I when I we later connected when I was at Simmons and, and at drum workshop, you know, you were, you know, you were just going up and up and up. You were with Cindy. You got the monkeys gig, I think, a, a year or two later, and you've, you've really had that gig when they tour for, what, 35 or more years now, 35 years, you know? And, yeah,
1: uh, on and off. Yeah, I did most, most of the reunion tours that they did since 1987 until uh, Davy died in 2012. Um, but between Cindy's gig, now, did were you working for Zildjian when, when I did the Freddie G's? clinic
0: no no i was it was i was i was working at freddy's yeah i just i was just on my way out to la to work for simmons it was right before i left
1: and then we we reunited uh because simmons uh cindy wanted me to play a hybrid simmons acoustic kit because she wanted to replicate some of the sounds on the record on that first record so and then we were associated because you were the, the artist rep with simmons right
0: that's right yep
1: and I got the yeah. the s d s five first, and then we upgraded to the seven right, right? with with the I nice remember. with the cushy pads instead of the the tile top pads. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they were easier on your elbows, yeah, for sure. yeah. and, and then,
1: you- and yep. then every time I ran into you subsequently, Hey Sandy, when, when are you coming over to Zilzio? And that was always true. I'm always loyal to the products I endorse because I, I endorse products because I love the product. I don't endorse products because of how many clinics they can provide, or like other who remain nameless. But and then finally, when stuff happened with Pasty, that kind of turned my attention.
0: I'm not sure I understand.
1: That was my. That was my. Uh, I didn't mute my my iPad. But so anyway, so I remember calling you um, when I was with Bo Diddley and I, I yes. finally succumbed and I went, OK, John, I think we can talk about a, a kind of a deal. And then you said, well, come up to Longview is Longview, right?
0: A, a long, uh, Norwell. Norwell Wind Water
1: Drive. Yep. Long water drive. I knew the yep. word. And and, and and it was awesome. That day I spent at the factory was one of the days I'll never, ever forget. And you were very generous and, and very, and then you ended up coming to the Bill Diddley gig at that little jazz place.
0: Yeah, that was awesome. That was, inc- I was going to talk about that. That was, that was like a, you know, really, I mean, seeing Bill Diddley live was life changing. It was, he was every bit as great in those later years as As he, as people remember him in those records, I mean, it was Mm -hmm. incredible, and uh, and you played the shit out of that gig, man. That was that was just such a a great band, and and it was just like a a great
1: night. Yeah, it. it was. And and could you imagine the thrill? Me being a fan, hearing those records because I have two older sisters, hearing Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis around the house growing up, and then the guy the the Hall of Famer who deserves to be on the Mount Rushmore of rock and roll uh, comes up and trades fours with me on my floor, Tom. <laughs> Can you imagine that the feeling that I had? I mean, I'm still, I'm still in awe. I'm still a fan of people that I admired as a youngster. And then I end up meeting them and not only meeting them, but playing with them and not only playing with them, but they're digging the fact that what I'm bringing to the table is like, really a reward more than any kind of financial reward. It's like so gratifying to, yeah. to be yeah. part of that, you know,
0: that's, that's exactly, that's exactly. And, and, and you can see that. And you can, you can, you definitely get that from you, you know, and, and I see, you know, I see how positive you are about all these things and, and, you know, going back to when you got the monkeys gig, I re- I remember coming to see you at the Greek theater in LA. I was living in LA at the time and, and, uh, and, and, and your drum tech, Bob Euler, if I remember right. correctly, Bob, o, yeah, I do. great guy. You guys were like, so great. So accommodating. I, I think I spent like from sound check on with you there. And, and, uh, I said hello to Mickey and, and some of the guys and, um, and that, you know, like I, you know, you may, I, I think you, that's why you've had that gig off and on all those years, you made that gig your own, you made it like you played the parts that, that were, necessary to, you know, to replicate from the record, but it was you, you know, and, and, and it rocked and you could tell the band really dug it. The band really loved having like a, you know, a solid guy, solid groove
1: behind the foundation, a foundation yeah, foundation. And yeah. and that's, that's something that I can relay to all the younger players that want to make a mark in this business, that as you go through, no matter what instrument you play it, you know, there's a certain amount of technical ability is, is, necessary obviously but you don't practice to be the fastest drummer or the the guy that can do hammer-ons on your guitar the way you're making in this business and the way I th- this this attribute I, I I attribute to myself is the fact that even with your, all your technical ability serve the song Yep. Serve the song. Play what's right for the song. And if you're if you're playing, if you're going on a gig where the the records are already done and you're given a set list of of the recordings, well, play. Make you know, spend time with those recordings and replicate them. I'm lucky enough to to have with the monkeys in terms of the monkeys. Hal Blaine, Hal Blaine, and uh, there was a guy on the East Coast too. Uh, um,
0: Fast Eddie Ho
1: him he played but there was a who he played on i'm a believer and he's got that the book um uh, not master oh. studies
0: um i know you uh great session drummer i'm trying to
1: yeah 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 i think his I name exactly starts you. with a k uh, i have his book Sorry, wow. i teach out of his book four-way independence his you know whatever whatever so the the point is is that you know i i have this hold on one second john it's not gary um This is what I give. Gary this is Justin, what I give yeah. my students. The first time for 27 years teaching at the collective, or when they come to my studio now, this is what I tell. This is what I, I give them. Yeah. Okay. The, this guy is playing all the chops he knows, and he's very. He's impressing the producer. This guy plays what what the song actually needs, and he gets the gig.
0: Yeah.
1: So that's it. It's not about you as the drummer about playing all the chops you learned and all the rudiments you learned at 50,000 miles an hour. It's not about that. You save it for your solos. In that Tom Dowd album, the first album I ever did professionally, I'm doing a a, a one measure fill in the intro to a chorus. Tom stops the playback and says, not the playback, but stops the recording and says, Sandy, you're going to do great things, man. You sound really, really good. He built me up before he gave me the constructive criticism. So I relaxed a little bit because I thought he was going to ream me a new, you know what. But he said, Sandy, why did you play that fill in the beginning of that chorus? And it was the one measure long, four beats long. And I said, I thought it was a good fill, Tom. He goes, that's not what I asked you. I thought it was a good fill, too. It was played in time. Everything was articulated correctly. But why did you play it where you played it? And I didn't have an answer. And meanwhile, I'm thinking about I'm the guy on the other side of the cartoon playing this fill, thinking all my friends are going to hear this record. I'm going to impress all my drummer friends. Meanwhile, it wasn't about the song. It, and Tom reiterated that. He said, Sandy, That fill, the song doesn't need a fill that would be one measure long. All you need is a one beat, a little pickup on the fourth beat of the measure and bring the chorus in. You don't need to do that. Save that fill for your clinics. Save the fill for your solo. It's not what the song needs. And that that coupled with another advice from Tom Dowd, he said, another time in a lunchroom he put his arm around me we're by ourselves he goes sandy you're going to do really good things in your career this is my first project keep in mind you're going to do really good things in your career every time you come through miami with the with the famous artist i expect a laminated pass i want to come and see you and then i go well thank you so much tommy this is a guy that i read his name on back of records since i'm 14 years old and he's he's building me up like that and i'm going thank you so much. He goes, can I give you some advice that's going to make you even better drummer than you are now? I said, of course. He said, did you ever play with a metronome? And I said, no, Tommy. He goes, go down the road. I know the guy at the music store. I'll give you a good deal on a metronome. Buy a metronome. Take it back to your hotel room. Put it right in the middle at a real comfortable tempo and play air drum in your hotel room. Air drum, any beat that you know already, along with metronome time. Change the tempo, whatever. So I took those two words of advice. If it doesn't fit the song, don't play it. And B, rehearse with a friggin' metronome, because that's our job as a drummer, you know as well as I do, that to keep consistent time throughout the song is what the drummer is hired for, not the fills, not the fancy rudiments. It's the groove that that matters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. That's. I. I don't think any of us, you, me, Joe Vitale, you know, a, a, any of the great drummers that are watching this right now, can emphasize that enough. And I. And I. And I. And I don't mean to like, as you said, this is not to lay it on like young drummers, but I feel like there's so much emphasis put on all that stuff uh, when we're younger. I think any one of us, when we start off, is, you know, we're trying to play faster, we're trying to play more technically, but isn't it amazing how, as we get older, it's none of that matters anymore. You know, it, I mean, for me, it's, it just doesn't. I mean, if I, if I knew I could go to every gig and play great time, great feel from start to finish, I'd be a happy camper. You know, I'd, I'd be, that's all I'd want to do. You know.
1: Absolutely, and and that's not to say now you know now if you're if if you auditioning for Mahavishnu Orchestra, or if you're auditioning for Tool, or if you're auditioning for um, you know uh, Jeff Beck the way he is now. Of course, there's a you know, Vinny Coliuda, sure. <laughs> bless his heart, man. But that's a guy that when he's in a musical situation where it calls for technique, the material, no vocal, instrumental. Jazz rock fusion, it calls for the technique. Well, Vinnie Caliuda, people like Simon Phillips can pull that technique out of the and play what the song needs. But they also can play pocket and they're happy to play pocket. A lot of guys that play technical all the time somehow feel, feel inadequate as a drummer if they're not showing all the stuff they learned in school. Yeah. But it's it's an insecurity. It's a look at me attitude. Put the spotlight on me because I'm playing fills in a ballad. You know, that's not that's not needed. You know, it's not. So it's it's a matter of being a mature person and being securing yourself. A lot of times I've been said it's, it's been I've been told I've been asked, how can you go on stage after so and so? Such a great drummer or whatever. I'm going, well, all due respect to the drummer. I'm me and I'm going to, I'm going to do what I know how to do. And if it's not good enough, fine. But, but this is what I do. And, and that's, you know, not from an ego standpoint, John, but it's, it's, uh, you know, since that time where I brought my own drum (laughs) drum set to the Rod Stewart audition, I've learned the fact that, listen, at my age, I do what I do and I've been doing it for 56 years. And if, you know, by now I should know if it's not good enough and, you know, I think it's good enough. Yeah,
0: I think so too. I think yeah, I think it's yeah. I think you've, you've proven that point. And I, I have to tell you that um, I think you know Jeremy Driesen. Yes, from New York. Yeah, you know Jeremy. I know Jeremy too. He's here in the vineyard, and he says hello. And awesome. I think he and I realized that at one point that we we know a lot of the same folks. And he anyway, he's saying hello to you, and he's
1: Jeremy Drizen was responsible for introducing me to Lou Christie, who. In the early nineties, he was a singer that sang lightning strikes and had sure. a bunch of hits in the sixties. Yeah. And yeah. Jeremy Dreeson was his musical director, but then Jeremy got busy doing something else. So he referred me to Lou and I was Lou's musical director and drummer for maybe three or four years. It was also early nineties, I think it was.
0: Early nineties. Okay, cool. That's really I didn't realize that. Hmm. Jeremy Jeremy's a, a fine drummer himself. He is. And a, and, a, and a fine human. And Jim Catalano, your old friend, our old friend from Ludwig said, hey, Sandy, you were there in the first year I started at Ludwig in 83. Always remember our clinic tour back then. All the best, brother.
1: Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Give him my best. Really good to hear from you. I heard Jimmy's uh, retired now. Good luck in your retirement, Jim. And I appreciate it. Uh, yes, I was there in 83. Uh, and I think I was with Ludwig for about 20 years, I think. 10 or 15 years. I think I went with, went, uh, DW sometime in the mid nineties.
0: Yeah. 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 Jim, Jim, great guy. He's, I had him on, on the show a few months back and, and, uh, what, you know, he, he's an incredible resource when it comes to the history of Ludwig and, and just a you know, everybody's friend, great guy, mm-hmm. great guy. So, so Cindy, is, I, I want to jump back a second too, where you, you mentioned, um, seeing Ringo and the Ed Sullivan show. And, I, and that was a question I'd wanted to ask you at the very beginning. If, uh, you know, if, if that had an, you know, knowing we're of the same age, more or less by, you know, by a matter of a few years difference, if Ringo had an influence on you and it sounds like he did, was that like one of the biggest, was that a big turning point for you as a drummer? Had you already been playing or did that make you want to play or?
1: <clears throat> well, it, uh, to answer your question, um, that, that was not only, that, that was the only influence, John, seeing them. I got a drum, um, I got a toy drum for Christmas when I was two years old, living in a tenement in the Lower East Side, Little Italy of Manhattan, and I'm proud to say that this is the actual drum I got when I was two years old, oh my and gosh. I actually drew a, a smiley face on the, uh, and it's all stained or whatever, but I... So from the age of two, and again, I mentioned that growing up, I listened to 50s music, 50s rock and roll like, by, by the Mount Rushmore of rock and roll, or, you know, Chuck Berry and Little Richard. And so I was always attracted to rhythm, but not until that night, February 9th, 1964, when I seen the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, I had never seen a drummer actually play until that night, I, I always heard my dad listen to big band around, you know, so Louis Belson and sing, sing, sing and all that, all that stuff. And then my sisters played 45s of all that stuff. So but I never actually seen I, I was sitting in front of the, t- and there was a lot of hype surrounding it and around that appearance um, because the, the songs were being played and whatever on, on American radio. And I sat in front of the TV like this. <laughs> and just the, the the you know Ringo playing being Ringo, and the three guys up front and the way they dressed and the sound of that the up uplifting song, she loves you. I saw her standing there, and um, but then when I saw how the women were reacting in the audience, that's something that I didn't realize prior to that moment. I'm going, I don't really know what's going on there, but I want part of that. <laughs> <laughs> I want part of that situation. So, from that moment on, john, I, I I fell asleep with that image of me at the drum set, not not picturing myself from an audience standpoint, picturing myself sitting in Ringo's seat looking at the three guys from the back and looking at the audience beyond beyond them and that was that's what I wanted to do that lit the flame inside me and that's what I wanted to do and I was not going to stop and I knew in my heart that it was going to happen it was just a matter of time and that that little incident in LA that I mentioned that I was at the bottom of the bottom that was the the, the most I was to not achieving my dream
0: yeah
1: i almost I almost gave it up at that point, but I didn't. And I pictured myself and I said, I I deserve this because when you have an image in your mind that you feel like you deserve it, you feel like. And not only that you deserve it and you're going to do everything necessary to achieve it, but you have an enthusiastic feeling that it already occurred. Like if any goal that you have, if you close your eyes and imagine that it already happened and the enthusiasm and the happiness that you would have as a result of it happening, and that kind of opens the doors and it replaces the universe, puts things in your path in order to accomplish what you believe you deserve and you believe that could happen. And that's exactly what happened with me. It You know, sometimes problems happen to us on our way, traveling through life. Problems happen, but it may not be the end. It It is not the end. A problem happens to us because it's the universe saying, how bad do you want it? When I, I was inspired to bring my own drum set to a Rod Stewart audition and I didn't get it. It was the biggest audition I had at that point in my life. And I could have easily gave up and I was close to giving up. But I didn't because I believed in myself and I believed that there was it was only a matter of time. And it was the universe testing me, saying, how bad do you want to be a a, a rocking drummer or a a rock star drummer, if to use an overused term? Mm -hmm. How bad do you want it? So it's a test. It's the universe testing you when problems are placed in front of us. It's the universe testing us to see how bad you want what's on the other side. And when you get past that, how much do you think my confidence increased when I got the blackjack gig and I was in the studio with Tom Dowd and Tom Dowd saying in interviews that I was one of the five best drummers he's had in the studio in 10 years. I'm going, what? This is Tom Dowd talking about me? That's I'm five the five best drummer, and this is a guy that, that that produced John Coltrane for Crying Out Loud. You listen to Tom Dowd. Go, whoever's listening to this, Google Tom Dowd, and you'll see the credits that he has. And this is somebody giving me kudos, saying that I'm gonna do great things in the business. I mean, that that's that's an accreditation from, you know, yeah. that's like that's like, you know, Mozart going, You're gonna write some good songs. <laughs> yeah you know well, it's I, like it, come on
0: yeah and you're exactly right i mean that what what better inspiration or, or motivation is there for you to keep pushing harder than to have tom Dowd, you know basically endorsing you saying you know listen you know you yeah just like you're gonna do great things you just you don't need to play a fill for that you know that whole measure you, you know what i mean little things like that 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 i totally know what you're saying sandy i i i've I've been fortunate to maybe not have Tom Dowd say that to me, but that, you know, people that I respect and that are big influences saying and doing things for me that, that helped me. So I, I totally know what you're saying about how that, that spurs you on to to do better and to mm-hmm. try harder. Yeah. Without a doubt. Absolutely. And, and I was going to ask you, you know, like going back to when, um, that situation, you know, when you auditioned for the Rod Stewart gig and you didn't get it, did that, did that drive you to, you know, kind of hit the woodshed harder, and and uh, you know, I mean, was it like a motivation to to want to play more? To,
1: to what, when I when I blew that audition, yeah, the only place it drove me was to the liquor store. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I'm telling you, John. I was at the depths of my. I was at the depths of the disparity pool. I was. I was in despair. I was in. I. I, I was i was i was hurting myself yeah
0: yeah and i don't mean to laugh at that i just it no,
1: was- no no <laughs> no it's totally laughable now because it all worked out it all it came out you know smelling like roses but but you know going through that period it was a very dark period and as i mentioned it was the darkest period i ever went through in my whole life man it was like it was scary it was very scary and it's only because I got the little tap on the shoulder and I used to go to cry myself to sleep at night, you know, wasted off my ass, excuse the French. But I had that vision in my mind of the vision of me at the drum set with the three guys in front of me and the audience beyond. And that's what, and there was still the, the, the a glimmer of the flame that was lit when I saw Ringo now the, the flame almost went out when I didn't get that audition, but there was a still. It was an ember. There was still an ember burning, and then when I got the call from Steve Weiss, and this is Led Zeppelin's attorney, what? When I and then the flame started getting lighter, <laughs> lighter. <laughs> and, uh, so the rest is history. Now it's still burn, It's still burning bright as I sit here. You know. I know.
0: And so when you when you saw Ringo, you were about twelve or thirteen.
1: I was, uh, I was 13,
0: 13. And, and that was the beginning. And so was, was the Beatles music a big influence, like from that early point in your drumming, or did you, did you sort of open? Because when you think about that time, like all the British bands that were coming over, there was like, not, not long after that Led Zeppelin and, and the who and deep purple and bands like that. So were there, was it like Ringo and the Beatles or was it like all that, you know, British invasion music.
1: It was exactly that. It was it was predominantly Ringo and the Beatles. And um, uh, and I'm still a used, they're still number one in my book in terms of, and on that gig that you might come to personally on as a little aside uh, for Jay De La Sola, that cancer benefit, I'm going to be playing In My Life, which is my, the Beatles song, In My Life. Plus I'm going to be playing Oh Darling and plus um, Twist and Shout. Oh, with, with with jay's band so um and um yeah but to answer your question as the beatles yeah the, i was in cover yeah i was in a high school cover band so we did a lot of beatles stuff but we also did stone stuff we did led zeppelin stuff we did um you know herman's hermit stuff we did and i went on to play with peter noon later on to do did, did some isolated dates with with peter noon herman's hermit's but. Um, so yeah, it was mostly the British invasion. And then I started getting into Aris Smith and I, of course I was into the vanilla fudge on the American side, but I never was, I was never a West coast guy in terms of the music that emanated from the West coast. I was a fan of their album, CSN, Crosby, Stills and Nash. I loved sure. it. I liked their songs, but in terms of emulating drumming, um, Aris, in America, Aris Smith Mountain, Corky Lang and, and Leslie, um, they were a big influence, uh, um, but mostly British Invasion, Cream, yeah. uh, The Who, Led Zeppelin, and The Beatles, and The Stones. Uh, and th- they were basically the influences. Yeah. And, and still today, that's what I like to listen to.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, too. You know, and, and uh, you know, I mean, I, st- I, got, it, I, I got interested, in, you know, in drums when I was in music when I was six or seven years old. And at that time, The monkeys had just come on TV. 1966 and and uh, i'm just like as an aside not knowing that that the monkeys you know on tv didn't play their own instruments they they later did but you know mickey was like a big influence but you you were a little older than me you probably realized that they weren't really playing their instruments but but i think back to like my formative years it was like it was ringo it was charlie it was all those british bands but you know the monkeys were, were a big part of it too and it's you know Kind of a cool thing that you're playing with those guys now.
1: Yeah, and to to, to address what you just said, when I used to rush home and watch the Monkees on TV, and and it kind of reminded me. I found out later on that they they that Hal Blaine and they had session guys playing, yeah, and um, on the on all their records. But at the time when they were on TV, I thought it was brilliant. I, I thought uh, I thought it was just great, and it reminded me a lot of Hard Day's Night. The you know the yeah. the hijinks and. You know, and the fans and all of that. And um, and that monkey gig came about, again, as I mentioned early on, came about as uh, I did somebody a favor. This guy named Jerry Renino. Rest in peace, Jerry. But he was the musical director for a band called The Tokens, uh, a 50s band. They had a, the hit Lion Sleeps Tonight. Yeah, and, and anyway, long story short, on a Wednesday, Jerry Renino, a complete stranger, calls me. This is like a um, the end of 86. I'm in a bind. I don't, I, I, my drummer bailed on me for a gig this Saturday with the tokens. It's an oldies gig. Um, if I, if I don't find the drummer for this gig, I'm going to lose my, my gig as musical director. He was the bass player and musical director. He said, can you help me out? And long story short, the gig was like two hours from, from me. I was in the middle of the winter. I'm coming off an arena tour and, uh, I have to bring my own drums. The sound check is at 3 p.m. The gig is until 9. I can't go home in between. And then once we play the gig, I got to wait till 11 to get my drums off the stage because we had to wait till the show ended. And and so it was a 12-hour day for hardly any money. But this guy was very sincere. He was almost in tears, man. Can you help me out? I I tried every drummer in New York and I ended up doing the gig. I ended up doing the gig because he felt really sincere and I wanted to help this guy out. I wanted to light the flame in Jerry and I wanted him to be grateful for having called me. And I did, did the gig, everything worked out. A couple of months later, he gets a call that he's, the musical director for the monkeys. Hey, Sandy, you were so nice to me. You, you bailed, you'd be great on this. Do you want to do this reunion tour? I said, sure. Who's it with the monkeys? I said, of course. Are you kidding me? You don't wow. have to ask me. And I jumped, jumped in. And, and, uh, and from then on, I did almost every reunion tour thereafter. And Jerry and I became very, very close friends. And that was an association where you may ask one of your questions on your list. How'd you get the gig at the collective? Well, I'll tell you, John, I got the gig at the collective because I was rehearsing the monkey tour, the monkey material at the collective because they rented rooms out at night for, for independent guys to practice. If you lived in an apartment in Manhattan. So I walked out of there and Rob Wallace, one of the owners at the time of the collective says, what were you doing in that room? I was paying for my rehearsal time. And he said, and I said, rehearsing for the monkeys goes, Hey man, do you ever think about teaching? And I said, no, but I thought about something my mother told me as a kid. If you ever want to learn how to swim, Sandy, jump in the deep end of a pool and you learn how to swim really quick. So I said to myself, you know what? I never thought about teaching. I hardly know how to read past an eighth note, um, but I'll give it a try. He goes, okay. when you get off the when you get off the road, call me. I'll set you up from some students. Twenty seven years later. I taught at the collective for 27 years and now I'm teaching. I had to learn how to read so I can teach reading. I had, I had to play with it. I, you know, took Tom's advice and all my students play along with a click. So I'm rehearsing with a click for 10, 10 hours a day or something. And, um, so that made me a better drummer. Um long story short, I did instructional videos called Drum Basics for for DCI, which is Drums Collective, the original VHS instructional video. Yeah.
0: Um
1: it was a big reward for helping Jerry Renino out that one night and and I had that and that was my day gig in between tours and records when I'm sitting around wondering what's going to come next. My day job was teaching the instrument and if you ever mm-hmm. want to do yeah. if you ever want to do something really good and really well, teach somebody how to do it. Yeah. yeah. And that was that was it was awesome because now with my confidence in my reading, my reading got a lot better, my chart reading. So I was able to do those one off chart gigs, which I, I was insecure about doing prior because I didn't really know how to read. So it was a tremendous amount of benefit that came not only financially but artistically from helping a guy out on a Saturday night in the middle of a winter to do one gig wow. and and the payback was incredible
0: that's amazing that that is amazing i you know again i've known you a long time i assumed that you had all your teaching all your your reading chops together and that i you know i remember when you started teaching at the collective i i think i was there at one point and robin paul said yeah we got sandy janeiro teaching cuz they didn't really have like a Correct me if I'm wrong. At that time, they didn't really have like a rock guy there at that point, teaching they like didn't. a rock curriculum, right? You were the you were the maybe the first and only guy to do that. And, and well, now you-
1: that now now there's other guys doing it, but I, yeah, yeah, you're right. At that time, it was all Afro-Cuban jazz rudiments. There was all teach specialty teachers doing, but no rock. So I was hired to do yeah. the rock blues double bass. Uh, The history of rock and roll music, you know, uh, uh, other classes that were that were part of the collective programs, you know, style analysis analysis and analyzing the history of rock and roll. It was it was very, you know, and me doing research for these projects at the collective and these these um, these, you know, the 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 different programs that they had. I had to go to school. I, I went and did my own research. So in order to teach people, again, the same with reading, I had to learn how to do it. When some a student, the first couple of months of me teaching, hey, Sandy, can you transcribe this? And it was a Slayer record with like you know 150 beats a minute, 16th notes at 150 beats a minute. I'm going... I can, but give me a week. I'll have it for you next week. So I would go home and spend <laughs> that time trying to listen and, you know, transcribe oh. and write a chart for this guy. And that's basically, and I thought about my mother. Well, I deep, I did jump in the deep end of the pool. And it turned out really, really good. I'm, I'm really wow. happy to announce it. Yeah.
0: I know. Could you, Could you You probably could have never envisioned that you, you know, when you were in LA and, and uh, you know, the late 70s, that you'd be transcribing it a, a slayer, you know.
1: <laughs> no shit. No. no <laughs> Double can't. bass
0: drum, you know. Oh my god, that's crazy. That's funny. Hey, I have to tell you, our our good friend Chuck Tilly is watching and he said Oh, awesome. Hey Chucky. There? I love Chuck, man. He's, I
1: love Chuck Tilly too. His band is awesome. Six wire, the band Six Wire is awesome. Yeah. Um I'm looking forward to going to a Predators game, Chuck.
0: Oh cool. Yeah. He he's yeah, he great band. He's a fine, fine drummer too. I'm gonna just read you some of these comments too that uh some of the guys are posting here. Just just a lot of great positive comments here and what you're saying, Sandy. People are agreeing with the you know, the positive message and all the the uh the things that you're saying. So it's it's resonating. That's great. That's awesome. And and yeah, and sorry, you it's funny. I had made a note about the collective, just I I wanted to touch on it, and I'm so glad you just worked it in there because um, as I said, I remember when you I, early it was the was it the early nineties when you started teaching there? Is that sound um
1: no, it was it was nineteen nineteen, it was late eighties. Oh. It was, 80s. It was 80s. after okay. I got off that first monkey tour. It was like okay. late eighties, it was like nineteen eighty seven. Got it, got it. Fall got it. Yeah. of eighty seven, I think.
0: That's right, because you said it was twenty seven years that you taught there. So
1: and I only stopped teaching there when I moved to Nashville in two thousand fourteen. Yeah. Or else I would have still probably been there.
0: Yeah. And and did you later expand the didn't you like expand it to like a music business program or something um, or that was well, part of what you part of what you taught was.
1: Yeah. Part of what I taught because I used to get, you know, these rock guys would come in for a lesson. They would go and some guys would book a lesson for me not picking up a pair of drumsticks. They would want to know, hey, uh, like a, like they would book time with me to ask me how I would get a gig because a lot of these guys that went to the collective were from other countries and other states, and a lot of them stayed in New York because of the, the hotbed of musicians that are in New York to try to get their first big break. And they would ask me about, you know, what's per diem? Mm-hmm. Um, I was offered to do this three-week tour with this, this indie band. Who pays for my drumsticks? Or if my drum heads or so, I would get questions like that. Hey, how do I get an endorsement? Hey, um, you know, do I need to be a big star to get an, you know, so I get questions. Hey, what, what about taxes? You know, what, so I would get business questions like that. And I went to John Castellano, one of the, at the, at the, at the time, who was the director. And I said, yeah. John, I'm getting all these questions about, and we teach about the business and we teach every kind of genre of music here, but nothing about, When they step out of the collective and on the streets of Manhattan, what are they? What are they going to? You know, where where do they go to get a gig or what networking or? So he goes, well, what would you teach? Come come to me tomorrow, and what would you teach in a music business program? I went to him the next day, and I had a legal sheet of the topics I would cover as a band guy, a business band business, and another sheet how I would uh, um, um, uh, approach from an independent contractor situation, you know, a 1099 guy, a studio guy or whatever. And he, and, and it started, the, he, I went into him the next day and he said, great, we'll start a music business program as part of the 20-week program or 10-week program at The Collective. Right. And that's how it started. And, and in my music business class, twice a semester at The Collective, they put a, uh, a poster in the lobby inviting the public they would charge like ten bucks or something. So, a lot of times, I would have the students there that were enrolled, plus people from the from outside. From that yeah. would that. So, I, a lot of times, I'd have like a hundred people, hundred fifty people in a, in a small in studio A at the collective down on the third floor. Yeah. And it was very rewarding because I would get questions and and, and say, well. Um, you know, I, I would have to come to the table prepared about I would get questions about publishing. I would get questions about what's the writer royalty as opposed to publishing, you know, who makes yeah. more money, the writer or the public. So I and not being a songwriter per se, I would have to do research in order to satisfy those questions. And so I learned a lot in the process about the business of music and teaching it.
0: That's great, man. That's and, and what a what a great way to round out their curriculum, you know, having, having somebody that could speak to all those things besides drumming, like such important things that, that, you know, they probably never really thought a lot about that stuff. When Rob and Paul started that school, it was really about teaching, you know, but, but like you say, so much of what you're talking about has become such a major factor in the life of a musician that, that, uh, you know, that's important stuff to know.
1: And it's, and it's, uh, it's, it's, again, it's not about your chops. It's about a mindset. And it's a lot of the questions that I used to get is like, hey, uh, you know, how do you deal with like a famous person? You know, you're you're there in an audition and, you know, Lenny Kravitz walks in or Rod Stewart walks in or, you know, the big star you're auditioning for walks in. How do you deal with that nervousness or whatever? And I don't want to be crude, but and there's an old saying that I always used to say. And I'll, I'll kind of soften it. I'll, I'll soften it a little bit, but nobody, nobody craps Hagandas. <laughs> so you know, at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, we are all the same. We are all the same as people. Rod Stewart is the same as me. You know, Ringo, yep. John, is the same as you. You know why? Because we're a human being. We're a human being, and that's the common denominator. We're all humans. We're not animals. We're not plants. We're all part of the human family. And when you advance the life or the career of someone else in the human family, it engages. It makes. I I like to use the word God because I believe in God. But those that are non-believers, there's a universe. There's a lot of crap stuff happening that we have no idea is going to happen or has the power to happen. So it's when you engage. And then now, one of the biggest things, because I don't want to neglect mentioning this, and I mentioned at the beginning of the, this podcast that every major gig has come to me as a result, indirectly or directly, as some me engaging somebody where I didn't really have to, but I did because it was the right thing to do. And it would light the fire in that other person. Again, 1983. I was I, I engaged this guy in the doorway. It was a Travers Arena gig. Everybody was on the bus. I was in a real big hurry to get out, but this guy is asking me for an autograph and a picture and he asked me to get him a gig because he was a bass player on connect hey can you recommend me some gigs in manhattan i said well i can't recommend you unless i hear you play so here's my home address and phone number send me a cassette of your playing this is 1983 send me a cassette of your playing uh, no it was like 82 And I'll see what I can do. He could not believe this is Sandy's home address. I go, no, no big deal, man. Just send me a cassette. No big deal. He sends me a cassette. Nothing happened. Three years later, he said, calls me and he said, hey, Sandy, you were so nice to me in the doorway and you're a great drummer. You would be great for this girl that I just signed to Epic. She's going to be the biggest thing in 1984. I want you to come down and be in the band. I want you to be in the band. We're still doing our first record. So it turns out to be Lauper. Cindy Lauper, unknown Cindy Lauper, doing her first record. I met her in the studio, blah, blah, blah. We started talking, whatever. And I ended up doing The punchline is, is not only at that time, it was the biggest tour I ever did in my whole life, um, but I met the woman that's still my wife today on that tour. I met the woman that's in that next room, uh, Sherry, in November 23rd, 1984, in Charlotte Coliseum, when Cindy played Charlotte. So I'm thinking to myself, now, we're still happily married. We're married for 36 years or something and um, have a, a bright, healthy 27-year-old daughter. And it ch- changed my life just paying attention to that guy in the doorway. I could have been the rock star drummer, the, the, the arrogant rock star drummer, which we all know that a lot of rock stars are kind of fall under the category of arrogant. Could have blew right by him. Oh, I, can I tell could have stories. I could have been, I'm sure you can, man. <laughs> and I'm then, kidding. but I, I, I could have put a, a polite rock star hat on and went, Hey, buddy, I'm sorry, man. My road manager is going to kick my ass if I'm not on the bus in two minutes. I can't engage with you and leave. But I said, No, they can wait two minutes on the bus. I want to see what this guy wants because he's there to see the drummer in the band, not there to see Travers. Travers was only on the bus. And I, I engaged him, and uh, the rest is history. And sometimes I think gee, what if I would have just blown by him? Or let's say, you know, where would my life be? Where, where would my life be today?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I I think I'd be doing the same thing. I think I'd, I'd be wondering like you'd, you'd hope maybe that there might be another opportunity where something, but, but, it but that one thing, as you say, that, that's significant because from Cindy, you know, that propelled you to these other situations and, and boom, 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 boom. Not out go the lights, but boom, boom, boom. You know, it's just catapulted you further and further along. You know, and
1: yeah, the dominoes yeah. kept falling, John. And amazing, and uh, yeah, and it's the way you act and think—not you personally, but the way one acts and thinks—enables yeah. those dominoes to be presented, and then you act upon them, and boom, boom,
0: boom, boom yeah. Boom.
1: And here I am. Um, what, thirty-six years later? Thirty-seven years later? And uh, cool. and I'm still, you know, I still look at the future. I, the, the kind of metaphor I use in my speaking is I look at the future like I used to look at Christmas morning. And what does that mean? Well, when you go down at five o'clock in your parents' house and you go down at five o'clock in the morning and the house is dark, but you see, you look under the Christmas tree in the living room and you see all those presents. And you don't know what's in those presents because they're all wrapped. But you know they're going to be good, and you can't wait till your parents get up to tear open those presents. Well, that's the way I look at the future. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow or the next week or the next year. But you have to have a positive anticipation like something good is going to happen. And, yeah, it may not always happen the way you want it to happen, but there's a reason why. So just deal with it, learn from it, and move on, period. Yeah. That's great.
0: I know we're getting close on time, and I want to just tell you quickly that Kim Billings says hi from uh, Mississippi, before I forget to tell you that. Um, hi, Kim. Lots, yeah, lots of great comments. And I, I, I know uh, I, I want to talk about what you're doing now, in addition to your playing, your speaking, but I also was going to just touch on um, the segue from, I'm guessing, from the monkeys led to meeting David Fishoff, and and doing the rock and roll fantasy camp, being a camp counselor at the fantasy camp right. for
1: the last. And yeah, actually, David Fishoff was the promoter of one of the of the first few Monkey reunion tours, and that's how basically I got engaged with with David. <clears throat> and um we still we still you know kind of know we know each other we're friends today, and uh and that's what when he started the fantasy camps in the early nineties, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um I started them. I think I've done ten or fifteen of those. Rock and Roll Fantasy Camps, and uh, I look forward to doing more. Yeah,
0: that's but that, great.
1: I, that was a great concept, and I'm sure you're, you're familiar with, with with what the camp is. And uh, yeah, um, it's 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 a great thing because not only do I combine I combine the two favorite things I like to do is teach and to play and perform, and I get to perform on some of my with some of my peers that I admired from afar. Now I'm getting to play on the same stage with them. People like you know Elliot Easton. You know, people like Mark Slaughter, people like Mark Fawner, people like, you know, all, the list goes on and on. And I'm reunited with Bruce Kulick, who was in the Blackjack gig. Yeah, now he's yeah. doing camps. We're playing together all those years later. It's just an amazing thing. And I just, I just, I still, I never lost the enthusiasm for situations and moments like that where, you know, you meet somebody that you, you admire from afar and now you're, you're playing t- with them. You know, it's just awesome. Yeah.
0: Well, that's why I, I wanted to mention that because I, I see you like the perfect guy for a situation like that, where, you know, when there's a lot of great musicians that do those camps and I'm sure that David's very smart about who he asks to do them because you have to be able to, to play, but you have to be able to teach. You have to be able to kind of like herd the cats, so to speak, you know, correct. Kind of bring everybody in. And in some cases you've got some, I'm guessing some players that maybe hit, it's their first time or near their first time behind the instrument, So you've got to gauge all that and, and, you know, make it all gel. And, and uh, I've been to a couple and I, and I've seen what you guys do. It's, it's amazing. And I, and I love the concept.
1: It's great. One of the, can I, can I just tell you one little short story about that? Sure, and then, and then yeah. uh, we, we have until we have another we have, some time. we have some time. I mean, it's up to you, John, but we're okay. I'm okay. As far as my schedule. Though. Okay.
0: Yeah. We'll go a couple more minutes. And, um, and,
1: and, and. There was a guy. Now, when I choose songs for my camper band, like you said, you get all levels of competency on their instrument. So I try to choose songs to do in the camp the lowest possible denominator. So I try to pick the simplest songs. So one of these songs that in one of these camps, it was in LA, I remember, I picked Louie Louie of a song. So it's this bam, 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 dan, 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 dan. And you repeat that that three chords in that rhythm for two and a half minutes with some lyrics over it and you have the song. This one keyboard player was not getting it. He was not getting it. Long story short, he was not getting it after a couple of days. And I would spend time with him on, on my own time without the band to try to get him to. He wasn't really good in keeping playing the thing in time. Yeah. Yeah. He came to me and he said, Sandy, almost in tears. He was, he was a, um, he, he was an Indian guy. I think his name was Shamsheer, but he was an Indian guy, very sweet, soft spoken guy. And it turns out that in his real life, in his other job, he was like a nuclear physicist or something in the Bay Area. He, he gives these conferences all over the world for, for what he does. He was very successful at what he does, but he couldn't play that three chords in time. So he says, I'm going to leave the camp, Sandy. I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to drag you down. I don't want to drag the band. I'm going, Shamshir, you can't leave. I said, come in the room. Everybody was at lunch. I brought him back in the room, me and him and his keyboard. And I said, Shamshir, you took lessons, keyboards lessons. He goes, yeah. I said, what is your favorite song to play on the keyboard? Play me one of the favorite songs you can play. And it was Louis Armstrong's... um what a wonderful world it will be, right? What a yeah. and he played it beautifully, and I said, you know what, cheer we're gonna do that song. We're wow. gonna do that song I, at the performance at the you know at the finale of the camp. They have a gig and whiskey a yeah. go go in this case, you know, in, in a venue. So I said, you're gonna you're gonna do this song. So he kind of faked his way through the other couple of songs, but. It went, and I went to the lighting director at the Whiskey, and I said, when, we, when you hear me, when you see me come to the front with the handkerchief, I want you to spotlight the keyboard player. Because what he told me, Shamshir, in rehearsal, he goes, I'll only play that live if you sing it. And I went, be careful of what you wish for, Shamshir. So there it was, Whiskey Go-Go packed. All, all the VIPs, all the other counselors, and all, all the star, that, I forget who was the star of that camp, but everybody was around, and the spotlight, now it's time, the rest of the band leaves, now it's Sham Shear with the spotlight on him, and me with the handkerchief. Sky is blue! And he's playing, and I'm imitating Louis Armstrong. Somewhere on YouTube, there's a video of it.
0: Oh, I'm going to find it.
1: And Sham, yeah. Shear, um, Sham Shear just nailed it. He was and then afterwards backstage he gave me the biggest hugs in tears going thank you for that opportunity thank you for having faith in me thank you and then seeing his feeling and seeing his face and get this close to my face with tears in his eyes that was that's what i do that's why i do what i do the money is is is, is yes important you know everybody's got to keep the lights on but that's the reward yeah that when I see yeah. a student's face or when I'm playing opposite a student on two drum sets you see my studio there I got two two DW drum sets face to face and when I'm when when somebody's f- fumbling with a with the beat and and they're dropping sticks and they're getting discouraged keep going keep going and they finally lock up with you and the light bulb yeah yeah That's what that's why I do what I do to 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 light the flame in other people, whether it's, you know, somebody needing needing a drummer for an oldies gig or somebody wanting an autograph or somebody, you know, whatever, or saying hello to somebody in the supermarket, whatever it is, uh, just to see the smile on their face. You know, and you don't do it while anybody's watching. You do it because it's the right thing to do. You don't do it for your own pat on the back. And, and that's basically you're bringing up the, the subject of what I, I I'm motivational speaking now to corporate. And that's basically those lessons that I've learned and, and, and those the way your mindset is and the way you treat other people and what comes back to you as a result applies to all human beings, whether you're a janitor or whether you're, you know, Bono or whether you're, well, you know, whatever, no matter where you are on the corporate ladder. On the on the musicianship ladder, it applies to everybody.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's great. And and with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you get ready for your next call in just a few minutes. And thank you so much for doing this. This has been great. And there's there's a couple questions here. Maybe, Sandy, yeah, just, please, please. At, at some point, well, you could even go back and and you could answer them on the on the Facebook page. But uh, Anthony Kusina asked a question about how you teach um, what kind of things were you working on to improve your playing No, let's see. That's, he asked a lot of really good questions, Anthony. I'm going to see. There was one about um, how did you learn to read, to teach others, which I thought was an interesting question. And, and uh, you know, if how an approach-
1: well, I, I had, when I first started playing drums, I started taking lessons and um, I learned from the stick control book, I learned, for George Lawrence Stone, I learned just the basics of what a measure is, what 4-4 time means, quarter notes, eighth notes, eighth note triplets, 16th notes. That's all. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what a chart looked like. I didn't know what DS was. I didn't know what uh, uh, the coda was. I didn't know what what, the you know, the repeat two measures, all the road signs were. But I had to teach myself that. And that's basically I just kind of uh, relate related what I was hearing on a record. To how it relates to time and how it relates to how many measures, if you can count to four, you can count how many measures are in a song and what, and then me having the basic knowledge of what those basic note values. I applied it to the particular song that I was listening to. I have, if I had a chart, a song for for a student or whatever. And if you're interested in learning how the very, very basics, you can go to YouTube and search Sandy Gennaro drum basics, which is one of the videos I did for the drummers collective um, in in association with DCI, with drummers collective um, about teaching young kids entering the music business and just the very, very basics of reading and the drum set itself.
0: That's great. Okay. That's great. Um, Sandy, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to hang on just a minute cause I know okay. we're getting close to your next call. I'm going to we'll, okay. we'll sign off here, the stream. And we can thank everybody for watching. Um, any last words you want to.
1: Yes. I want to know. Well, anybody can, yeah, I, I have a Facebook page. It's my name. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'm in Instagram. It's all under my name. And if anybody has a question now, John, you mentioned that all the questions are being asked. I can go back later and look at the questions and answer them. Yeah. If anybody Mm -hmm. has any inquiries or anything that I can help you with, or if you just want to say hi, just reach out to me. And and it may take a day or two, but I always answer all all my Facebook situations. That's great.
0: No, you do. You're you're amazing like that. And that's that's great. Yeah, this this will this will be on your page.